Turn, if you would, to the 21st chapter of the book of Matthew. <laughs> for those of you who have been here for a while, you realize that uh, I've, I've mentioned that on Saturday nights I go walking through the park and I teach the lesson. So I got to the furthest part of the park away from my house when the rain hit. <laughs> I was soaked to the bone by the time I got home and didn't think about the lesson at all on the way home. I was getting pounded. Now, somebody did comment this morning that they had a big construction project this morning in uh, England. At Stonehenge, they were moving all the rocks back one hour. <laughs> Last week, we finished chapter 20. We had yet another discussion about who is greatest in the kingdom, where uh, a mother came and said, I want my disciples to sit next to you. And Jesus said, I've come to serve and to be a ransom for many. Over and over again, he has been telling people that he's going to die. At least three times he has told his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified. Last week's lesson, we discussed the fact that he finally says, my death will be a ransom. It will pay the price for many people. Chapter 21 begins a major transition in the book of Matthew. He has been roaming around and he's coming to Jerusalem finally. It is time for everything that he has predicted to come true. So at the beginning of chapter 21, he is going to enter Jerusalem. He is going to enter Jerusalem as a king. And before the week is out, he is going to be tried. He is going to be crucified. And as you know, he is going to be raised from the dead. This will be the rest of the book of Matthew, with the exception of the last chapter, which talks about the ascension and his time after his death. So we're going to spend many weeks working our way through this. I actually asked uh, Teresa when Easter was to see if I could time it right <laughs> so we could actually finish Easter on Easter, but we'll probably be done by then. So, chapter 21. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came up to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. They, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he set on them. Simple picture. We have heard this all of our lives. When I was a youngster, our church would do a large Christmas pageant down at the uh, convention center down, uh, downtown, and we would go through this every time. We would have the triumphant entry. Let's talk just a moment about this week. Not this week, but this week. We are going to work our way through the book of Matthew. That's important to remember because 
each of the four Gospels sheds a different light on different events that happened during this week. And you can look in a reference book and you can find uh, charts that line all of these up. Every year at Easter, our church in the bulletin in the week before will put a list. Here's what happens on Sunday. Here's what happens on Monday. Here's Tuesday. Nothing happens on Wednesday. Here's what happens on Thursday, Friday, etc. Some people want to argue at length about whether you can actually line up the four Gospels or not. I was actually listening to a series of lectures this week in my car, and he basically was saying, well, since the writers of the Gospels, whoever they were, it certainly wasn't Matthew, whoever they were, just kind of made a lot of the stuff up, it's foolish of us to try to line them up. Don't bother. Just read them as individual stories and what was this guy trying to say, what was this guy trying to say, and try to find some truth in the middle of it somewhere. Well, we don't believe that. We believe the Scripture is inspired by God, and we believe that four Gospels were written to give us different insights into what was going on through the life of Jesus. That's why one gospel will emphasize this, another gospel will emphasize this. Matthew, as we talked in lesson number one, 57 lessons ago, in lesson number one, Matthew is presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Ben's turning the lights off on us as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, and he's writing to a Jewish audience. You get to John, and John is writing to a different audience. Each author is looking at the life of Christ under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and saying, see, this is what you need to know about. We do believe that the four accounts in the four Gospels can all be lined up without difficulty. That's not to say there's some discussion about, did this happen on this day or that day? Okay? We won't get into too many of those. I bring that up because in just a moment, we're going to have the triumphant entry, and then Jesus is going to clear out the, the temple. You're familiar with the story. The odds are that the triumphant entry happened on Sunday and the cleaning of the temple happened on Monday because the other Gospels comment that he left town and he came back in. Every night he would leave town, leave Jerusalem, stay in one of the suburbs and walk back in the next morning to do his ministry. So that shouldn't surprise us. It's just the way the book is constructed. So, Matthew trying to demonstrate, to represent Jesus as the Messiah, the Jewish fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, throughout this book is going to say, and this was written to fulfill, and this was written to fulfill. Now, if you really want to get bizarre, and you start wanting to go into things like the last temptation of Christ, if you've ever read the book, you have... God telling Matthew to write this when Matthew knows it's not true. But God makes him do it anyway. We don't believe that. We believe the scripture is inspired by God. And to me, that's interesting because listening to this series of lectures I was listening to this week, the word inspiration was never used, ever. 
in any of the discussion, it was irrelevant. It was a group of men, probably men, probably not the disciples, probably not any of the people whose names that we see at the top of the page, writing something. Well, we do not believe that. So, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. He sends two of his disciples ahead. He says, find me a donkey. He says, there's going to be one tied up. We see his prophetic vision. There's going to be one tied up. Untie it and bring it with me. And if anybody asks you about it, just say, the teacher, the master needs it. Now, let's look at this for just one moment. I mean, we won't spend a lot of time on it. But if it was your donkey and some random person came up and untied it and said, the master needs it, are you going to say, oh, well, sure, go. But what we see is the Holy Spirit going ahead and preparing the way in ways that we would not even understand in purely human concepts. So, they go get the donkey, they bring it to Jesus. Now, Jesus is going to enter as the king. For about four or five verses, he's going to be the king that everybody expected him to be. Except for the fact he's riding a donkey. Now, I don't know about you, but you know, I've seen all the ancient movies, you know, where the king comes in in ancient days. He's in a chariot. He's in a chariot. He's got attendants. At a minimum, he's on a really nice horse. But Jesus is going to come in on a donkey. Why would he do that? Well, it tells us why he does it. He does it to fulfill the prophecy. The prophecy of how the Messiah is going to enter. This is not what the people want. It is not what the people expect. Let's keep reading. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed him. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. And he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowd that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So let's just take this backwards. Who is this that everybody's getting excited about? You have to understand, we don't have the evening news. We don't have social media. We don't have newspapers. What we have is word of mouth. Jesus has been roaming around the northern part, around the Sea of Galilee. He's gone over the coast here. He's gone across the, the uh, uh, Jordan River to the other side. He's been a roaming around. He has not spent much time in Jerusalem. They don't know who he is in Jerusalem. Let's also remind ourselves though, of what's going on this week. What's going on this week, it's the week of what? The Passover. What does the Passover signify? 
Back when Moses was told to bring the people out of Israel, he goes through the ten plagues. The last plague is the killing of the firstborn unless there was blood on the doorpost. And then the angel of death would pass over and they survived. Pharaoh kicked them out. And God said, remember this every year. And to remember it, everyone was supposed to bring a sacrifice. In order to bring a sacrifice, they had to bring it to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was packed. It was packed with people from everywhere. Every good Jewish person was in Jerusalem for the week. They were excited about everything. They were just excited to be there. And here comes this guy, and people are shouting Hosannas to him. What does Hosanna mean? Anybody know? Yes. What? <laughs> Save us. And another thing, um, it was very, very cloudy, and the rabbis saw them laying at that time. Yeah. So we should talk about that. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what she said. Because we're going to talk about it. In just a moment, just a moment. Hosanna means save us. It can be used as a uh, prayer to God, please save us. It can be used as a blessing. God, save us. And they're shouting to Jesus, Hosanna, Hosanna. And the people from Jerusalem are going, who is this guy? Who is this guy that the crowds are yelling and screaming for? And what do they answer? This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee, which I might add is a truthful answer. It's not all the answer, but it is truthful as far as they understand it. Remember Jesus' question to Peter, who do the people say that I am? And they had all these other answers, and then Peter said, you are the Christ. They don't understand that yet. They don't understand that. They probably haven't heard enough to understand it. But they do know that he's a prophet. He is preaching something. He's from Galilee. Truthful answer. So he's coming in. The crowds are laying down their cloaks and their branches in front of him. That's why this is called, are you ready? Come on, come on help me. Palm Sunday. Every year at Christmas, at at Easter, I'm getting my, anyway, every year at Easter, the kids in church will come and bring their palm branch. That's what this is signifying. This is Sunday of the week of passion. So, Jesus comes in. Here's my question. Why are they doing this? Why are they shouting hosannas to him? when by the end of the week he's going to be turned over to the Romans, he's going to be crucified. For one brief passage, Jesus is the king of the Jews. Maybe they Daniel 9. What did they remember from Daniel 9? Mm-hmm. 
gosh, she's good. Daniel 9.24. Remember what we talked about in the first lesson and many other lessons. The people were being oppressed. They were being oppressed by the Romans. They were being oppressed by, I don't know, the religious leaders. They were just being oppressed. They wanted a Messiah. They wanted someone who would save them. But what does save me mean in this context? Save me from the oppression of the Romans. Come in. Be the next David. Be the next Solomon. Be something to save us. That's what they wanted. They wanted a Savior, but they didn't understand the Savior that they needed. They had an idea. And for one brief moment, what we have here is Jesus presenting himself as the king, and he's giving them the opportunity to say yes. We've had long discussions in here before, and I always go back to, from the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslam's comment, it is not for us to know what might have been. It is not for us to know what might have been if, in fact, the Jewish authorities had said, hmm, maybe this is the Messiah, because we know they're not going to do it. We know they're going to reject them. By the time we get halfway through this chapter... The Jewish authorities are going to want to do something about him. And by the time we get in the next chapter and the next chapter, he's going to turn on them and he's going to finally let them have it. The people wanted a Messiah who would save them, but the salvation that they wanted was freedom from some earthly bondage. And what Jesus was coming to do is exactly what he said in the last chapter. I am coming to serve and to be a ransom for many. So, who is this guy? He is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And as I said, between verse 11 and 12, they probably went out of town for the night. So, picking up in verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, that's a strange verse. If you don't understand what's going on. All of, all of the good Jews would come to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, I've got to come to Jerusalem with something in my hand, something to sacrifice. I can bring a lamb. If I am too poor to bring a lamb, I can bring a pigeon. But you know, carting a pigeon or a lamb from the furthest port, uh, place where I might live is difficult. So instead, I'll just bring some money, and when I get to Jerusalem, I'll buy the animal. No problem. Piece of cake. What money am I bringing with me? I don't know. It's the Roman Empire. I'm probably bringing a coin that's got Caesar's picture on it. Well, guess what? They're not going to let me into the temple 
to buy a sacrifice to God with a coin that has Caesar's picture on it. We're not going to go there. So, I've got to exchange my coin for a temple coin that doesn't have Caesar's picture on it. Guess what the exchange rate is? Anything I want it to be. I've got a captive audience. You're a good Jew. You're coming. You have to offer a sacrifice. You can't pay it with any money that you have. I can name whatever price. And all of a sudden, you have to exchange your Caesar money for your temple money so you can buy a sacrifice. And I get to set the rate. So standing at the gate of the temple are the money changers. How much you got? What currency is it? What value is the gold in it? And I will give you what I think is right. So I'm halfway done. I've exchanged my money for temple money. Life is good. Except now I've got to buy an animal. Guess what? There's people over here selling animals. Guess what they're charging? Anything they want. I've got a captive audience. You know, right, that not any lamb will do. Okay? It's very clear in the Old Testament, you are supposed to go to your flock and you're supposed to find the best one. And that's the one you sacrifice to God. Who determines what the best one is? <gasps> the priest! I've got a whole flock of best ones over here, and you can have them for a price. And it's a money-making deal. Right? I take your Caesar money, I convert it to temple money, and I make a profit. I take your temple money, and I make you buy a lamb that I paid a buck for, and I'm charging you ten. I'm... Yeah. So, it's a racket. It's a racket. And Jesus comes into the temple area and he sees all of this and he's ticked off. That's a loose translation. He is mad. So, he enters the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He has actually done this one time before. John tells us that he did it early in his career. He doesn't like this. Why does he not like this? Let's keep reading. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Why are they a den of robbers? Make a little money here, make a little money there, you get your sacrifice, I get my money. And it's not just a little money. I'm making a, a killing off of this. There's a pun in there somewhere. My house. What does he say? It is written, my house. If Jesus is the Messiah, if Jesus is the Son of God, this temple is not just our house. This temple is my house. My house 
is meant to be a house of prayer. Can you imagine the chaos taking place at this location at this point in time? I mean, we have people bargaining over here for exchange rates. We have people bargaining over there for animals. We have animals making every noise that an animal would make. We have crowds of people screaming and shouting. And he says, enough! Enough. And he goes in there and he starts turning over their tables. Now, if you want to win friends and influence people, this is not the way to do it. This is not the way to do it. Why does he do it? Because it's his house and they are defiling it. Not just kind of teetering on the edge. They are defiling his house. What is the lesson we need to learn from all of this? Well, let's start with the simple answer, okay? We are told to pay our pastor. We are told that he is worthy of the money that we give him, and that's a good thing. That is a good thing. We should do that. Those who minister should be supported by those who are given the resources to give to them, and that's a good thing. But there's another group who believe that they can use the ministry as a money-making machine. I am not, not going to talk about any names, where you might see them, what television station they would be on. I am not going to talk about that. But we see this throughout the scripture. Those who think that they can use religious trappings in order to get wealthy. And Jesus says, don't do that. It's almost like he says there's a special place in hell for those who do these kinds of things. Don't do that. Why? Because we know that people need to hear the gospel. And every time that gospel is attached to someone who is trying to rob the people, it blemishes and confuses the gospel message. That's the easy lesson. Don't be one of those people. We are told that godliness brings great gain, but that gain is not necessarily cash. Do not use your religion as a way of, well, robbing the people. And I will guarantee you, there are people in today's world who are doing exactly this. We've talked in here before. Actually, we've talked about it in the context of sexual temptation. We talk about Billy Graham and we talk about the fact that he would never enter a hotel room because he was, you know, being careful. Well, the second half of what he did was because he had asked, what gets evangelists in trouble? And the two were women and money. So he never saw the money. He got a paycheck just like everybody else did because he knew, he knew 
that the money would be a temptation. He was demonstrating what they are not seeing. That's the easy lesson. What's the better lesson? My house is a house of prayer. What was the purpose of the temple? I mean, Passover, they leave Egypt. They get out into the wilderness. Moses goes up on the mountain. He comes down, breaks the Ten Commandments, goes back up on the mountain, comes back down. And besides getting the Ten Commandments, which is what we always talk about, he got a set of blueprints. I mean, it goes on for chapters describing the blueprints of why. To build a tabernacle. Why? Because that's where God was going to be present in the midst of his people. What was the temple? The temple where was, was where God said, I will be there. Now, we can have a long discussion, and I don't know what it would look like. This is not Solomon's temple. You know that, right? Solomon's temple had been bulldozed. It had been torn down. It had been everything taken out of it. People carried off into captivity. People came back, and they built a temple, that sort of, and then Herod comes along, and he wants to impress the people, so he builds a magnificent temple. Okay? But it's the temple. God says, I'm here. God says, what do you need? You need to talk to me. What is prayer? Us talking with God. What should they have been doing? Somebody should have been handing out sacrifices. Here, take one. You need one? Here, take one. I don't care what money you have. Yeah, give me some. Whatever you have, I'll take it. Here, take one. You need one. Go in there and talk to God. Go in there and tell God what you need. Go in there and tell God that you are repentant of your sins. Go in there and talk to God. And the religious leaders, that was their job, was to tell the people to talk to God. To tell the people, forget about all this other stuff. God's here. Talk to God. My house is a house of prayer, and you have turned it into a den of thieves. You have taken what is supposed to be communion with God and turned it into a money-making machine, and I am really ticked off. (sighs) My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They were indignant. What does it mean to be indignant? Come on. Angry? Mad? Ha, I can't believe what you're doing in there. (laughs) Astonished? (laughs) We've seen this multiple times. It shouldn't surprise us, but it still surprises me. Jesus goes and he heals somebody. What do you mean you healed him on the Sabbath? You're not supposed to do that. 
Could you do that? No, but I'm mad that you did that. What does that mean? Once again, Jesus is in the temple and the sick and the lame are coming to him. And what does he do? He does what he's always done. He heals them. And the people are ecstatic. I mean, you can just watch this scene, okay? He's sitting there, I don't know, on the steps of the temple. He's sitting there and up comes a lame person. And he goes, be healed. And the guy starts jumping and running around. And the crowd says, wow, isn't that cool? What do they say? Hosanna, God save us, he's healing people. That's the picture. Another one comes in. He heals him. Woo! The crowd screams. Another one. Hosanna. Another one. Another one. Another one. Another one. And they keep coming. And the people start screaming more and more. And the religious leaders are over here getting more and more ticked off. Why are they ticked off? They're losing their place of importance. They're losing their control over the people. They're already mad because he just messed up their money machine. <laughs> and the people are following after him. Here's the question. Who do we get ticked off at? We see someone that God is blessing. We see someone who has a ministry that God is blessing. And we get ticked off because, well, our ministry is just over here floundering. Why do we do that? Pride. Our pride stands in the way. Jealousy. Ooh, we wouldn't do that, would we? Just think about this contrast, if you will. They are indignant because they're losing their place of influence. Jesus was ticked off because, because God's house was being defiled. Now, I throw this out because if you remember sometime earlier in the year when we were working through the Sermon on the Mount. And we talked about being angry. And we know that in Scripture, it is possible for there to be such a thing as righteous anger. We know that's true, theoretically, because we see it here in Jesus. And I say theoretically because what do we get angry about when someone else is getting the lead? When somebody else is getting more than we are. When our power and influence is being questioned. When we are being put aside. When our ego and pride are being compromised, we get angry. And we see that contrast right here. Hosanna to the son of David. They, the religious leaders, were indignant and they said to him, Do you hear what these, what these are saying? They come to him and say, Don't you understand what they're saying? Aren't you going to stop them? First off, why would he stop them? Just as an observation. Well, they're acting like he's the Messiah. 
we know you're not the Messiah because you're not one of us. We know you're a nobody because you're not one of us. You've got to tell them to stop. You have to tell them to stop pretending that you are the Messiah. Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said, yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. What does that mean? What does that mean? Do you remember twice in the last several months we have dealt with children coming to Jesus? You know, here are the mature disciples arguing about who gets to be top dog in the kingdom. Okay? There's going to be a pecking order. We'll put Jesus at the top. Hey, we're good people. We'll put Jesus at the top, but I want to be number two. I'll let you be number three because you're my brother. Uh, you're four, you're five, you're number 12. That's the way it's going to work. And Jesus looks at them and says, look at that child over there. See that child over there? Unless you come to me like a child, you're not making it in. Wait a minute. What does that mean? We had a long discussion. We had a discussion about the difference between being childlike and being childish, right? Being childlike means you recognize your dependence on someone to meet your needs. My children, when they were younger, knew that I was going to have food on the table. Well, my beloved was going to have food on the table for them. Why? Because they knew they couldn't do it on their own. They were dependent. Blessed are what? The poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who are the poor in spirit? Those are the ones who recognize they cannot, cannot, cannot do it on their own. So, the religious leaders come to Jesus and say, tell them to stop. Tell them to stop this foolishness. And Jesus looks at them and says, haven't you heard? Out of the mouth of babes and infants, God has prepared praise. Out of the mouths of those who are not the religious authorities, out of the mouths of those who have not had all the religious education, out of the mouths of those who have no power and influence, God has prepared praise. Why? Because they're not indignant at Jesus for usurping their place of power. And leaving there, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, he was returning to the city. He became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you. And the fig tree withered at once. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And we're going to have a discussion here about faith. But we'll have that discussion next week. But let's talk about fig trees for just a second. It is interesting because this tells us that the fig tree withered at once. Uh, one of the other gospel accounts would point out the fact that it really wasn't until the next day they recognized that the figs 
tree had withered. Why would he do this to a poor fig tree? I mean, let's face it. You're walking through, and I'll, I'm going to change the metaphor and pick an apple tree. Why? Because I'd rather have an apple than a fig. It's just me. And I'm walking through the orchard, and there's an apple tree. And I look around the apple tree, and I cannot find an apple on the apple tree. And I'm going, shoot, I wish there were an apple on the apple tree. There's not, but that's just life, right? Sometimes apples have apple trees. Sometimes figs have fig trees. The implication is, is that because it had its leaves, it ought to have had figs. They should have been there, but they're not. What is Jesus showing us right here? Well, there's actually some interesting discussions about what this means. Probably, hmm? if you don't bear fruit, hmm, who's not bearing fruit at this point of the story? Remember where we started all this? He's coming in, and the people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he comes in, go ahead. Uh, yeah. And he comes in, and the people, well, the religious leaders are ticked off. The people want something. Everybody's ticked off at him. The nation of Israel, the nation of Israel has been offered the Messiah. And the nation of Israel has shown the signs of life. They have the leaves, but they don't have the fruit. And Jesus is saying, enough. Enough is enough. Now, we have to be very, very careful right here. In no way does God ultimately reject the nation of Israel. Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 deal with the fact that God has a future plan for the nation of Israel. Okay? We could have a long discussion. But there's also the implication that this generation of religious leaders had led the people astray and God was saying, you should be bearing fruit and you're not. And your time is passing. Not only are they, the religious leaders, rejecting he, the Messiah, he, the Messiah, is rejecting them, the religious leaders. And we think that's really harsh. And you want to know something? It's really harsh. We've had parables about branches that don't bear fruit. We have parables, we have stories in the scripture about what God is going to do to those who are not and we, in our understanding, thank goodness, of grace, might begin to believe that it doesn't matter. And God, Jesus, is looking at the nation of Israel. He's looking at the religious leaders. 
For those of you who remember Esther, our nice little Jewish lady who was in here for years, every time I mentioned the Jewish community, she would make a comment. No, it's not the Jews, it's just the religious leaders. So I'm being very careful in memory of Esther. It is the religious leaders that are rejecting him. There is no place in here for putting the death of Christ on the Jewish community. Do not do that. We talked about that last week. We talked about it because Jesus says, I'm being handed over to the Gentiles to be killed. We're going to talk about the Jewish leaders rejecting Jesus, and Jesus is rejecting them. And in about two chapters, he's going to turn to them and tell them what he really thinks of them. And you know what? He's Jesus. He can get away with it. I wouldn't recommend talking to people that way, just as a personal, but if God directs you to, go for it. Do what God tells you. But that's coming up. The disciples are seeing a picture. They are seeing a picture of God holding the Jewish leaders accountable for not doing what they ought to have done. And God is saying enough is enough. So next week, we're going to pick this up right here. And that's what we're going to do for this last week of Jesus' life. We're just going to see how far we get. And we're going to stop and we're going to pick it up. But you know where we're going, right? Don't lose sight of where we're going, number one. Number two, don't lose sight of the fact that God is in control of this whole week. You're going to get to the end of the week. And if you don't know the end of the end... You're going to get to the end of the week and you're going to think Jesus is in trouble. At any point of the story, he could have said enough is enough and zapped them all. But he didn't do that. Why? Because I've come to serve and I've come to be a ransom for many. This is the story that we hear every year at Easter. And sometimes we hear it so often that we forget what he's doing for us. Because the comment was made by somebody. At the beginning of the week, at the beginning of the week, the priest would bring in all these lambs that are going to be slaughtered. And at the beginning of the week, Jesus comes into town. Just one more lamb going to be slaughtered. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you that he was willing to die for our sins. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.